This morning, uh, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, this morning we're addressing the final uh, portion of this chapter. Um, and uh, that's uh, what I've labeled as part 3. We've gone through parts 1 and 2, uh, recognizing what the Lord uh, had to say there. But now as we address these last uh, clump of verses at the end, we see that uh, there is this press towards the end of chapter 2 that Paul makes towards a, uh, a consummated end or an eschatological end. And I was struck by these words by a commentator in relation to our passage this morning. He says, how can there be peace in a world of turmoil and uncertainty? How can we know peace of soul when our security seems so fragile and our world is so frequently in upheaval? Relationships change, jobs disappear, health deteriorates, careers sputter and tumble. What good is peace between persons when personal worlds crumble? We, can, we contemplate those questions this morning as, as we've all, especially in talking with you, have been dealing with these realities on a daily basis. That we find ourselves in a world full of turmoil, turmoil and uncertainty. We find there's frequently upheaval. We find that, that there are jobs weighing in the balance, that health is deteriorating around us. Even relationships change over time. And we ask ourselves, can there be peace amidst all that? Well, I think this is the implication of what Paul is getting at, specifically the implication of the inbreaking of the age to come in Christ. That he is creating a new creation, beginning with the people set apart for his glory. And this is all working towards an eschatological reality of dwelling with God. We find this world is transient because it is a transient world. We find our interpersonal relationships temporally are transient because they're temporary. It's, a, it's, the, it's the relationships that are rooted in Christ that will last Maybe not always in the same intensity, maybe not always in the same proximity, but, in, but a time will come when uh, turmoil and sickness and decline and uncertainty will pass away and even breaches in interpersonal relationships when the Lord again dwells with his people or dwells on earth consummately. And yet we don't just sit and wait with bated breath for that to happen because Paul is instructing us something that's uh, relative to today, to where we sit now, where we, where we come on a weekly basis, how we interact amongst one another now. And so we look to that and we ask Lord, Lord, what would you have us do as you tarry? How should we live together? What is the implications of this? 
Well, as I observed the last time I stood before you, that the previous section, in the previous section, the power of the gospel is displayed in the triune God's new creation work and bringing dead sinners to life in Christ. Here in the second half of Ephesians 2, the theme of God's divine work granting new life to his people takes on the form of reconciliation. And in doing so, we also observe that although this portion of Ephesians 2 is addressed primarily to Gentile Christians, it, it does so in such a way as to bring the Jews into the understanding that this was as much for them as it was for the Gentiles. For Paul is going to draw in um, scriptural themes understood by the Jews and being taught to the Gentiles, especially from the Old Testament, that point to a new humanity of Jew and Gentile. For the Jewish Christian would see that the good, the good news that God was fulfilling his promise to Israel through Christ and the inclusion of the Gentiles. Follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11 through uh, the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore remember that you that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by having it put to, put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near." For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, growing in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Amen. Let us seek the Lord's help this morning. Oh Lord, we ask you that you would help us this morning as we come before your word. Help us to be hearers, not just hearers only, but, but doers also. That you would bridle my tongue, that it would speak your truth that we would do this to your glory alone until the end of the age that we may long to see you as you are. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, 
as we continue on in Ephesians 2, one of the things that we've been doing is continually go back to Ezekiel 37. As we've seen Ezekiel 37 echo time and time again into our passage this morning. It's here in Ephesians 2 that the divine author makes the scriptures one in Christ. Where if we read Ezekiel 37 in isolation from the rest of scripture, especially the New Testament, especially the revelation of Christ, we may come to a strikingly different conclusion. But as we read scripture whole, we recognize that Ezekiel 37 was laying the groundwork for what Paul is now saying in Ephesians 2. Turn with me to Ezekiel 37 uh, shortly and quickly as uh, we're just going to look at the final five verses of uh, the first section. He says in uh, Ezekiel 19 through 24, there's uh, sticks that were to have names written on them. And he says he will take these two sticks, the names of Judah, the names of Ephraim or Joseph will be written on them. And then there, he's supposed to join them together. These, these two uh, parts of the kingdom are joined together. And he says in verse 22, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. He tells them in verse 24 that he, his servant David will be king over them. And they will all have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live in the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever, and David my servant will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel my, when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. We recognize that we find here in the end of Ezekiel 37, this prophecy of a covenant of peace to be made with this Israel and that there will be a dwelling of this there will be a sanctuary there will be a d god dwelling with them and it says that the nations would know that i am the lord who sanctifies israel and so paul writing to the ephesians whether in his mind or the mind of the divine author he it, it is written in a uh, a bit of harmony with ezekiel 37 there, there's, there's harmony of the words and themes so much that we start drawing these connections of, of what Paul is saying here about the, the two men becoming one. 
the dwelling, God dwelling with them in their midst, that there is a sanctuary being built, a temple being built. And so we, we've been recognizing that these two passages are connected. And we see that there is a new creative work of God in resurrecting sinners. And it will result in a reconciled humanity where deep feudal divides are abolished and a new people is made. And this new humanity will constitute a new temple and a new dwelling place of God's glory. In Ezekiel, there's prophecy that God will dwell with his people again. And this is found typologically with the Messiah. As we read in John's gospel in the first chapter, where it says, and Christ came and tabernacled or dwelt among them. It's, fine. it's found typologically with the Messiah, who is the cornerstone of this temple and of which the redeemed community is being built together has. We recognize that as we approach this last portion of, Ephes of Ephesians 2, it's, it's a crescendo of it. That, that we're not just, peace isn't just generated among each other relationally for peace's sake or for, for uh, something temporal here, but as a picture to the peace that we have with God, an everlasting peace, a peace that comes through one God that comes through one Redeemer that's in one Spirit, and we have access to one Father. We've been seeing how uh, this section of Ephesians is, is uh, structured with the relationship between 11 and 19 through 22, which is our passage this morning where there's this emphasis on uncircumcision and circumcision on strangers and aliens. And then in 19 and 22, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. And so we recognize as we approach this passage this morning, there's there's much that can be said about it. There's a lot of points of focus. There are two points I want us to focus on this morning, and the two points are Trinity and Temple. Trinity and Temple. And we keep coming back to uh, especially Trinity, this theme in the first part of Ephesians, because Paul continues to draw us there. He, he opens chapter 1 with this... Um, wonderful prolonged sentence about the inseparable operations of the trinity in redeeming humanity and then he comes here in ephesians 2 and he and he summarizes it nicely the first thing he says as we recognize in the trinity we can look at it in two ways and between access and an advantage in verse 18 it says that for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Paul is, is giving this purpose statement, this peace, this broken, this enmity that's been put to death, this peace that's been uh, made, this uh, reconciliation that's been accomplished has come that for through him, we both have our access 
in one spirit to the Father. As I was saying back when we were in chapter one, we saw Paul laying out the foundation of their salvation and the inseparable operations of the Trinity where the Father is working, so the Son and the Spirit. Where the Son is working, so is the Father and the Spirit. Where the Spirit is working, so is the Father and the Son. For all three persons possess and work according to the same divine essence. We're able to uh, recognize three persons through uh, this idea of what, what's known as eternal relations of origin, where the Son eternal, eternally is generated by the Father. The Father begets the Son, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from Father and Son. There we're able to draw some distinctions, but not at the expense of recognizing that they are one in divine essence. It's undivided. They're, the essence is not uh, partialed out between the three, where we see the son working and go, well, the father's not, not participating in this one. We see the spirit moving and, oh, well, the father and the son are not participating. For as they are one in the divine essence, where the Father is working, so is the Son and Spirit. Where the Son is working, so is the Father and the Spirit. And where the Spirit is working, so is the Father and the Son. Paul says, for through him, through Christ, through the Son, we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. Those words would get Paul kicked out of synagogues. Those words would, would get him laughed at in the pantheon. But these words that express the reality of the, the working of the Trinity in the salvation of men and, and to the consummation of our very being that, that, our, that our whole purpose, or the, our greatest privilege is to have access through him in one spirit to the Father. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Taking these two things together by the Son in one spirit, we see that they live, that they leave nothing unprovided. Here is afforded us both outward approach to God and inward correspondence with God, both the way to heaven and the power to tra traverse the way, both the joy of our Lord and the capacity of entering into that joy. This commentator uh, alighting upon the idea that we lack nothing in Christ. We lack nothing that is necessary for our salvation. And even in a greater way, we lack nothing for our good. There are many places we can look in our life and see lack. There are many places we can look in this world and see lack and see, obviously, sin, but we see lack in this world, lack in our leaders, Maybe even lack in this church, lack in me as a pastor. 
But as we look to Christ, there is no lack. And, I'm, and I don't even mean, uh, I, I, I'm talking in that way, I'm speaking maybe of sin, but if you think about it, in lack of what I provide you as a pastor, in lack of what this church may provide you as a member, in, in all these things of what the government could do more for you or the government could do less for you or less against you or your family or your job or your children. And yet if we, we met this out, we recognize that you actually lack nothing for your good and his glory. You've been given all things provided. That we recognize that you've been given both external approach and inward approach to God. You've been provided the way to heaven. And even more so as we live it now, the power to traverse the way. Both joy of our Lord and the capacity of entering into that joy. And to what advantage is access to the Father? Paul says in verse 19, he says, So then, on account of this access, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. You know, there is a great advantage to being in your household, I'm sure, to be in a to being a Montez or a Newbolds or a Davis or a Stanton. There's access that you have to to your children, to your spouse that nobody else has access to. Because you are of that household. If in some way, as the Bible often does, the lesser to the greater. There's advantage there to be in your household for those reasons. How much greater advantage do we have in the household of God when we're being told that we have access to the Father? To the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation. To the one who has graciously and mercifully allowed whatever circumstance you're in and whatever circumstance you bring before him to come upon you for the very purpose of you to bring it back before him and claim your dependence fully upon him. What advantage to be fellow citizens and no longer strangers. We know this. We see this play out every day in our nation. We have people going through harrowing journeys, dangerous journeys, fraught with all sorts of sin and danger just to be no longer a stranger, but maybe one day a citizen. There are people that pay great sums of money to lawyers to go to courts and fill out the right paperwork so that they can be no longer strangers, but citizens And we, it almost brings a smile to my face because we think about our nation and we think about the flaws and we think about the great sin, the unjust treatment of the unborn, the delusion of, of our current culture, and it's, it's lost the grasp on truth. And yet there's some privilege and advantage to being an American citizen. 
how much more to the uncorrupt, the unending, the pure, the holy, the righteous kingdom of God, the household of God. Believers are fellow citizens bound to seek each other's good. As fellow citizens, we're bound to each other's good. We're also bound to conform to the customs of our city. This teaches us our happiness. This teaches us our happiness when we are brought to believe and should stimulate our faith. Citizens of Bethel must not communicate with Babylon. We should not seek to make the church more like the world or more like Babylon. Or we're a city set on a hill. We're salt of the world. Believers are conjoined as members of one family. This is a stricter bond than the former and should serve to increase love. We being confined within one family, a common roof under which we all live and board, we must be all of one heart at peace and unity and the God of love and peace will be with us. What advantage do we have is to be fellow citizens, but with the saints and fellow household members. It is God's family, therefore we must live to him. The household is bound to obey his master. How dishonoring to God are the sins of those who profess to be his. But the Lord will make due provision for his household. We recognize that as Paul gives this very short Trinitarian statement about the wonderful benefits of being in Christ, that we have access in one spirit to the Father in him. And what great advantage it is to be in the household of God. And yet, for what purpose is all this moving? How, why are we a household? Why have we been brought together? Why do we exist? Because God is doing a creative work. He's building again. He's creating again. He's creating a new humanity. He's creating a new holy temple. We can look at this under two headings also, construction and consummation. If we look at the construction of this temple, we recognize that there are, there are three pieces involved. First, he makes mention of the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, different commentators take this different ways as to be either New obviously New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets as he, as he references something of that in chapter 3. But I take an understanding that Paul is referencing Old Testament prophets. He's drawing Jew and Gentile together. He's saying those that we read of every Lord's Day as we read God's word, they are part of this foundation this foundation of this new temple. God has been building this foundation. He's been fashioning this temple from the very beginning. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 
In 1 Peter 1 and verse 10, Peter writes, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. What do we, how does Peter categorize the truth of the Old Testament? He categorizes it first under Christ. Then he categorizes it under the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. All things related to Christ. How so? Because it's the spirit of Christ who was within them, who was indicating these things, who was leading them to write these things, that they would even go back to what they were written and make careful searches and inquiries. For they too were looking for the Messiah. They too were longing for God to do his restorative work. Look and listen to John, or you can listen to John chapter 1 and verse 45. It says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This shows us that there was an established hermeneutical principle of reading the Old Testament in such a way that Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We have found the one. We have found the Messiah who's now, we can now identify by name, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This is Philip, a Jew, saying this pre-Pentecost, pre-Paul writings, pre-New Testament writings. And he's saying, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Christ testifies of this also, John chapter 5. Beginning in verse 39, he's speaking, he says, you, this is Christ speaking, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I did, do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come to my, in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe in my words? Christ condemning 
these Jewish leaders, these scribes, these, these professors of theology for not having known their scriptures, for not having known that the scriptures spoke of Christ, of the one who would come. For in them they looked for their own righteousness instead of the righteous one. It's constructed on this foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so we see the apostles writing in union with the prophets. They now see Christ and are able to go and, and see more clearly what the prophets had prophesied about. And when I say prophets, I mean Moses the law and the prophets and other places it, he includes on the road to Emmaus, the writings, he, the whole Jewish scripture. And so these apostles now moved by the same spirit are writing with greater clarity, without shadow and veil, but with the substance who has come who is Christ. And where does Paul put him in this construction? He puts him as the chief cornerstone, the chief cornerstone of this temple. The cornerstone, we're well aware, is that, is that uh, preeminent stone by which all other stones are laid. If the cornerstone is off, then the whole building is off. But if the quarter stone is tried and true, then, then the whole structure will be built up to health and stability. Christ is that cornerstone. We do not rest upon the words of men, cleverly devised, as Peter says. But we recognize that it was what? It was the Spirit of God that carried them along and they wrote Scripture. Peter says, also another place, that Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. We rely and we rest on Christ alone. Isaiah 28 in verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. This is a New covenant promise. The Lord is laying a, Zion, a, a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, that he who believes in it will not be disturbed. Again, we were already in Psalm 118 this morning, um, or we are in 119. In Psalm 118, just before that, we read in verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save. We beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Blessed is, is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Consider this passage out of Psalm 118 as we turn back to Ephesians 2, recognizing what Paul is saying here. 
about this foundation of the apostles and prophets and now Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Paul is not looking at the edifices of Ephesians to come up with this analogy. He's reading the scriptures. It should be understood also that Psalm 118 is quoted by both the Lord and his earthly ministry and Peter in Acts 4 in, during Christ's heavenly ministry, our ministry from heaven. This all leading, this construction, all leading to this consummated reality that we are being built up into a holy temple. This being built up in whom the whole being is being fitted together. This being, this fitted together is that Greek word that's basically bringing into joint. It's the same word that is used in the Septuagint or root word in the Septuagint when the bones were coming together in Ephesians 37, or could be Ephesians 37, Ezekiel 37. They're coming into joint. Here Paul reminds the Ephesians that what was typified of old was now coming into reality. This holy temple would most assuredly take them back to Solomon's temple and its serving as the center of cultic life in Israel. They would have read that and say, we understand temple there. We understand holy temple there, right? Solomon, I mean, we... I don't have them committed to memory, but the number of bulls and goats and animals that were sacrificed on the day that temple was inaugurated was massive. They would be able to read about that and understand, yes, we understand a holy temple. We understand the separation created by that temple. And Paul, now you're telling us that we're being built up into one of those? That what you are building is, is the center of cultic life now? That there's grandeur and beauty to it? But then Paul goes even farther because in verse 22, he, he adds purpose. In whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. This holy temple would be indwelt by God. And he's speaking of the church. He's speaking of the, the worldwide church, the universal church. The one in the age to come that will not just be a city on the hill, it will be the whole hill, it will be, it will be over the whole earth. Paul adds this purpose and it harkens us back to the first temple in the garden. For the purpose of Adam in the garden was to tend the garden and to see it grow, that it would spread over all the earth. The temple garden in Genesis 1 was to spread over all the earth. That temple, too, is being made in the church. We consider uh, the works of men this morning as we've thought about the works of God and there is no comparison. There's a settling as we consider what the Lord is doing on a cosmic scale. As we look into 
and and dip down and and we we must because we live in it we must rise above it from time to time and remind ourselves psalm 27 the lord is my light and my salvation whom shall i fear the lord is the defense of my life whom shall i dread when evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh my adversaries and my enemies they stumbled and fell Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. This is, should be the consummated desire of our life. That all through the providential workings of our relationships, of our institutions, of, of all the things that are constantly changing around us, may our greatest and highest desire be to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our lives. John Owen commenting on this says, God dwells here as he dwelt in the temple of old by some outward carnal pledges of his presence. So in the assemblies of his saints, which are his habitation, he dwells unspeakably in a more glorious manner by his spirit. Here, according to his promise, is his habitation. So when we rest on the foundation of God's word and build on the cornerstone that is Christ, then we too are fulfilling a holy purpose even when we may not seem to be achieving much of any purpose at all in the eyes of the world. We do so to the glory of God. I want to close by reading the uh, opening verse of a hymn we'll sing tonight. Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. O my soul, Jehovah praise. I will sing the glorious praises of my God through all my days. Put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. He shall die to dust returning, and his purposes shall end. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you remind us so often as we need it, that you are working to a glorious end though it is hard to see during these times and may even get more difficult to see in times to come. May we never forget that we are being built together as a holy temple, as your dwelling place, the highest privilege that any creature could be given is to dwell with you. And you have promised to do so in Christ in one spirit, to one Father, to all glory, honor, and praise be. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, as we move